What's going on, everyone? And welcome in to Blizzard's podcast, filled to the brim with glitchy analysis and freezing cool takes so cold that they're boiling hot. Today's episode is proudly sponsored by Hungry Howie's Baton Rouge. Thank you so much to Hungry Howie's Baton Rouge. Check out their website for takeout and delivery deals. Right now, they have an awesome deal. Get a large one-topping pizza for just $7.99. And in today's episode, we're doing a Q&A. We love to see it. Thank you to everyone who sent in their questions. Be sure to leave a like on this episode on Spotify or YouTube and leave any thoughts or questions in the comments or hit us up on Instagram and TikTok. But I'm not going to keep you waiting any longer. Let's roll into this episode. First up, we're doing NFL question. Is Lamar worth what he's asking for? So according to multiple reports, Lamar Jackson is looking for a Deshaun Watson type quarterback deal in the sense that he's looking for $200 million plus guaranteed over five years. And he wants that money, like I said, fully guaranteed. So realistically, three things can happen. Number one, the Ravens can give him his money. That's pretty simple. Number two, they can exclusively franchise tag him, which means that he's going to make around $40 million next season, and it's only going to be one year, and he has no choice but to be a Baltimore Raven next year. Or, this is the most likely case, number three, they can non-exclusively franchise tag him, which basically means that he can look for another team to give him the deal he's looking for. Now, if he finds that deal, the Ravens can either match it themselves or have the team that wants to sign him give them two first-round picks as compensation for Lamar Jackson. To me, it seems like the Ravens are getting backed into a corner and they're either going to be you know, letting go of a former MVP for just two first-round picks or they're going to give Lamar Jackson the bag. So which will it be and which should it be? Lamar Jackson is an NFL MVP, like I said. Two-time Pro Bowler. First-time All-Pro. Okay, Multiple NFL record holder. Let me lay it out this way. He's 45-16 and 16 as a starter in the regular season. He scored 125 touchdowns while only turning the ball over 53 times. He's got 12 100-yard rushing games and two seasons with 1,000 yards rushing, the most out of any quarterback ever. But who has he thrown to the most? Outside of Mark Andrews, a tight end who caught a third of Lamar Jackson's passes throughout his career, His next three highest wide receivers are Marquise Brown, who's not on the team anymore, Willie Sneed IV, who's not on the team anymore, and Devin Duvernay, who has 800 yards over three seasons with the Ravens. There are pros and cons to signing him. Personally, I don't know if any quarterback outside Mahomes is worth $40 million under the current cap, but if I had to choose between keeping a bona fide winner and superstar or trying to find a new franchise quarterback, then let me ride with Lamar Jackson. Big trust. In his first five seasons, he's yet to have a losing record, and he's won some big games. This is a list of quarterbacks that he's beaten so far in his career. Patrick Mahomes, Tom Brady, Joe Burrow, Russell Wilson, and Josh Allen, not to mention the countless times that he's beaten the Browns, the Steelers in his division. So far, he has the best record out of any starting quarterback in his division over the last five years. Okay, In the AFC so far, he has been one of the best quarterbacks. Right now, I have him at the fifth best quarterback spot in the AFC. But give him a team, and I guarantee you he's probably going to win some damn games. Pay Lamar Jackson. I think he's worth it. Second question. Where does Aaron Rodgers go if not in Green Bay? And does he make that team a playoff contender? I think it's going to come down to who is willing to give up more. 
And I really don't think that there's any other team willing to give up what the Raiders are willing to give up. Some are arguing it's the Jets, but I think they're pretty sold on Derek Carr right now, just from the reports that I'm seeing. So far, for me, if Rodgers goes anywhere, it's straight to Vegas. And now, the second part of the question, does he make them a playoff contender? Honestly, I don't think so. I think there's too many teams in that division that are way ahead of where the Raiders are right now. After this year, I will give the same respect to Patrick Mahomes that I did to Tom Brady in New England. The Chiefs are winning the AFC West, and it's not even up for discussion for me. So now with the AFC West schedule, these are the teams that they have to compete with for a wild card spot. The Chargers, the Dolphins, the Patriots, the Ravens, the Browns, the Jets, Broncos, etc., 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 even the Titans. I don't think the Raiders are anywhere close to doing that, especially given the fact that Rodgers' cap hit is going to suck up all the spare oxygen in the room. Not to mention, they're going to have to give up some assets to get him in the first place. Pair that with the fact that the Raiders have about 15-plus free agents and lack countless quality players in depth at a whole number of positions, and I don't buy it one bit that he can make them into playoff contenders. So to answer your question, I don't think that Aaron Rodgers is going to make a new team a playoff contender, and if he does stay in Green Bay, he's got a small chance at doing just that. I think that's where he should probably end his career because it's just for the legacy purpose. Okay, He won an MVP there. Actually, he won multiple MVPs there. And he also won a Super Bowl there. Just stay. End your career. Don't Brett Favre this situation. We all know who that ended up. Sorry, Brett Favre. All right. Third question from the NFL. Who are your top 10 draft prospects? And do you see any massive blockbuster trades in the top 10? All right. This is a great question. I'm very excited to answer it. I'm going to give you the top 10 guys who I think are going to be best at their positions. I'm not talking value. I'm strictly talking best player for what position they play. Come back to this in a year and watch these guys be at the top of their game. Number 10, B. John Robinson, running back out of Texas. He averaged six yards a carry, finished with almost 1,600 yards on the season, 18 touchdowns. This guy is an insane athlete. I love his hip movement. I love that he just does not stop driving his feet when he grabs the ball. I think he's the best running back in the draft. Number nine, Jordan Addison, the wide receiver out of USC. Now, he was injured this past year, but he was the Blitnikoff winner before that. He's the best get-open guy, and he's the best slot in the draft. And right now, slot guys are really hot on offenses. Just take a look at what Calvin Ridley has been doing. Hunter Renfro has been having a good career. Cooper Cup is amazing. Now, he doesn't play a slot a lot, but still. Jordan Addison is a slot receiver, and he will dominate that position next year. Number eight, Paris Johnson, the offensive tackle out of Ohio State. This guy is extremely versatile. He's got a great build and a phenomenal tackle body. I think this man is going to wreak absolute havoc on all pass rushers of all size. Number seven, Derek Hall, the edge out of Auburn. Now, a lot of drafts have him in the 20 to 25 range. I think this is the steal of the first round. This guy's got a high motor, an extremely quick twitch, and not to mention he's unbelievably fast in space. I think that this, like I said, is the steal in the draft. He is going to go probably in the late half of the first round, maybe even early second round. The team that grabs him, good luck, because you're going to have a hard time not having this man in your facility 
all of the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Number six, Dalton Kincaid, a tight end out of Utah. This is the best catching tight end that I've seen, maybe except for Kyle Pitts coming out of the draft. He's a high catch, high route running, great separation tight end. This guy is Travis Kelsey, just needs some experience like Kelsey's got, and he could be that guy. Number five, Jalen Carter, defensive tackle out of Georgia. He is a physical freak, the best pass rushing down lineman in the draft. I think this guy is going to dominate. He's going to be what Trayvon Walker was supposed to be for the Jags last year. Number four, Bryce Young, the quarterback out of Alabama. He has the best pocket passer, has the greatest pocket awareness, and an extremely high IQ. Some might even say too high for his own good because he holds on to the ball for too long. I do think that Bryce Young is going to light it up. He just really, really needs to go to a team that can protect him in the pass game. Number three, Joey Porter Jr., the corner out of Penn State. This is one of my favorite picks in the draft right now. He's got a great deep ball defense, phenomenal size, and a great press attack. He could be used in zone or in man coverage. I like his versatility between the two. I love Joey Porter Jr. Number two, Broderick Jones, the offensive tackle out of Georgia. If it wasn't for the number one prospect on this list, this guy would be the number one in this draft and a lot of others. I think Broderick Jones has a huge upside that people are kind of missing out on and sleeping on because of some other offensive tackles in the draft. But he has dominant hands, and he always wins at the line of scrimmage. The one thing that he really has a hard time doing is being too aggressive, which can be coached to be less aggressive and more intelligent when he backs up in the pass game. I love Broderick Jones. I think he's going to dominate the league for at least 10-plus years. Number one, this is one of the easiest decisions I've ever made. Number one prospect, Will Anderson, the edge out of Alabama. Come on. Insane quickness. The first step is the best in the draft out of any lineman or edge rusher, offensive or defensive. And he is just an absolute ball hawk. Whether that quarterback is handing it off in RPO, dropping back to pass, rolling out in play auction, Will Anderson is there. He always will be there. And those are my top 10 picks. Now, do I see a blockbuster trade? I do indeed. I think that the Bears are going to trade away the number one pick. I also think the Cardinals are going to look to trade away the number three pick because the value of a quarterback versus any other position is just obsolete. I think that the quarterback is by far the most important position when it comes to the draft, and there are going to be a lot of teams who want to move up so they can get who they want. There are four quarterbacks that I think are going to go in the top 10. Anthony Richardson, Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, and Will Levis. All four of those guys would be worth trading up for, I think. So I think that the Cardinals and the Bears are going to trade down. And whoever moves up into those spots, guaranteed they're drafting a quarterback. All right, so my last NFL question. <laughs> just what I was just talking about. Blockbuster trades. Should the Bears trade Justin Fields? Now, this is a pleasant, freezing cold take. So cold that it's boiling hot. The Bears should trade Justin Fields and there's an abundance of reasons why. For starters, Fields is one of the worst pocket passers out of the shotgun that we've seen in years. I don't even remember last year that he took a snap from under center, but 
Maybe he did. I didn't see every single snap of Bears film. I'm so sorry to all of you absolute sweat lords who can get into the film room and watch every single down of one team play an entire season. Forget it. It's not happening with your boy. I won't do it. Like I said, Fields is one of the worst pocket passers out of the shotgun that we've seen in years. Now, a lot of this is not completely his fault. I'm not a field hater. Let me just say that. But scheme, lack of weapons, and a coaching change could be a major cause of why Fields has not been a great passer. But it seems like he falls short as a passer because of his reliance on his athleticism. The problem with this is, like Michael Vick, like RG3, and many other scramble quarterbacks, injuries are going to come. And even Lamar Jackson, I just forgot about him. Lamar Jackson, injuries are going to come. And when they come, what will Fields have to fall back on? Is that the type of quarterback that you want to hit your wagon to? To me, I think that Fields can easily become a top 10 quarterback, but it's not going to be in this system. It has to be in the right system. And that's absolutely, like I said, something that Chicago does not have right now or in any time in the near future. And that leads me to my second point, that Fields is already on his third year of his contract. Now, are you really going to convince me that getting no top-tier receiver, not having a quarterback guru on your staff, and already having back-to-back disappointing seasons with injuries, Fields is going to have some kind of miraculous third-year renaissance? It's not, like I said, it's not because I'm a Justin Fields hater. I think he could be a good quarterback. I just don't think he could be a good quarterback in this horrible environment. And after your third year, guess what conversation starts right around the end of the third? The infamous contract extension. Is that really something that you want happening after you make a minor improvement and go 6-11? and 11? It can be a cancer to the locker room. And it can be all sorts of things, but what it can't be is good for your team. Last reason, but in my opinion, the most important reason, you can press the restart button on your franchise by trading fields and drafting a new quarterback. The best part about the Bears situation is that they have the number one overall pick in the draft. And I don't know if I've said this already, I'm sure that I have, but there are four top 10 quarterbacks in the draft this year. You get first dibs on anyone that you want, and you reset your contract timeline. Instead of having maybe two or three more years of Justin Fields at minimum, you've got four to five years, and that's not to mention that I think quarterbacks like Bryce Young are better than Fields right now and have a higher ceiling and a lower floor and also have more coachable traits. It's hard to coach a player who's already developed two full years of habits in the league. That's not a dig at Justin Fields. I have to say it one more time. I'm not a Justin Fields hater. I literally was talking to somebody today about this exact situation. Are you sure you just don't just like Justin Fields? And I was like, no, he's fine. He can win somewhere else, but he's not going to win here. It's the same theory with like the Houston Rockets and then building up to their draft. John Wall was talking about it. These young guys that are being taught these bad habits, it's going to be so hard to teach them how to actually win and have a winning culture when all they've ever known is losing and having a bad professional career in terms of like discipline and maturity. I don't think that Justin Fields is going to win in Chicago. The Bears need to trade him. Now, moving on to the NBA, let's start with one that's really close to home for me. How many more injuries should we give Zion before we lose hope that he'll be a star in this league? 
To be honest, I've already lost hope that he'll ever play more than 60 games ever again. This is not a knock on Zion whatsoever. Oh my gosh. I've got to reiterate it again, I guess. I'm not a Zion hater, but this is just the reality. The thing that makes him so dominant is his size. He's listed at 6'6", 284 pounds. According to multiple reports, his max vertical is 45 inches. But okay, let's just say that it can be, you know, down to like a game realistic 37 inches. To me, and maybe to you, just listen to this. Does it sound humanly possible to launch a 284-pound body, 37 inches, or three whole feet into the air and land with all those pounds of force over and over and over again, three, four, and five times a week for an 82-game season? And that's not including training camp, off-season workouts, practices, playoffs, and just plain workouts and lifting weights. To me, his or any human body is not meant for that kind of payload. If he was five inches taller or maybe 40 or 50 pounds less, then yeah, sure, I could see that. I believe it would be far less strenuous on his knees, his feet, and his hamstrings, but his size is what allows him to average over 25 points a game in the league right now, when he is in the league, that is. I don't have a practical solution for this problem it just seems like an extremely frustrating situation for fans the pelicans organization but most importantly zion himself my condolences to him i hope that i'm wrong and i really am looking forward to seeing him come back to action this season i do want to say on the contrary that if zion can get healthy and play for at least a month that april would be a hell of a time to do that Right now, the Pelicans are the 10th seed at 30 and 31. If they can just float and stay alive in the playoff race, I think that Zion is the X factor to make them a serious playoff contender. If you plug him into the current lineup, you've got CJ McCollum, Brandon Ingram, and Zion. Those are your three co-stars that all average 20-plus points per game. Not to mention, you've got guys like Josh Richardson, Jonas Valanciunas, Herb Jones, and Trey Murphy who are high-end starters, and then you've got Jose Alvarado, Larry Nance Jr., Najee Marshall, and etc. being great depth on the bench. That's a lineup that can go at least 10 deep. My point in saying all this is Zion can come back and lead that team, but he's not going to be the face of the NBA, in my opinion. I really think that Zion is a dominant player, but that dominance comes at a cost. Okay, Next NBA question. If you were starting an NBA franchise, who would you rather have, Shea Gilgis Alexander or Anthony Edwards? Now, that is such a good question. I think this is my favorite question of the night so far and an extremely tough one to answer. First, I'm going to list out the pros and cons of each player where they are right now. First up, SGA is a guard capable of averaging 30 plus points and shooting a decent percentage from the floor. He's extremely aggressive on both ends, and his size towers over a lot of other point guards, which he matches up in night in and night out, which is why he's able to average over a steal and over a block per game. Combine that with his fearless drives to the rack, and you've got yourself a more physical version of Damian Lillard, in my opinion. The cons of his game, though, is that he doesn't shoot at a high clip from range, which forces you to surround him with shooters to win. Now, shooters typically means that you are most likely liabilities on the defensive end, and that leaves SGA with tough assignments on the defensive end of the court. 
He's also a shoot-first point guard, which in NBA history doesn't have a large history of success, titles, or playoff runs. But it's not that he can't win. It's that it's much harder to win without your main ball handler not being a distributor. And that brings me to my third point. SGA does not operate tremendously well off the ball. He's not a shooter, and he's not a big. In today's NBA offense, there's not a lot of guards that thrive off the ball that can shoot or rebound with bigs. Therefore, you have to put him on the ball so you can't pair him with a ball-dominant star like LeBron, Luka, James Harden, etc. But even after all those cons, he's still a top-five point guard in my opinion and someone that you want on your team. Moving on, though, to Anthony Edwards. He's your prototypical two-guard. He's been in the league for three years, and he's seen an increase in every major statistical category every single year. He's got tremendous power for his size. He can rise up with the best. Even at the young age of 21, he's already in the top 20 in scoring per game, and I definitely see scoring titles in his future. He's also not someone you have to build around in terms of having shooters on the floor or not. He's capable of the three-point shot, and he's a great finisher at the rim. And most stars in the league don't share his grit on the defensive end. He's a great on-ball defender and a good interceptor in the passing lanes. But his cons, though, are pretty mental. His teammates have pointed out his maturity issues, and he himself has made them known. From not dieting correctly, to taking plays off on both offense and defense, to posting a video of him using a homophobic slur are just the few things that you don't want to see from your franchise player. But to me, this whole question on who I would rather take has to come down to one thing, and that's age. Edwards is only 21. He can mature, and SGA is already 24. I go with Edwards because of age and age alone, because he has years left to be molded into a bona fide, mature superstar. At 21, SGA was averaging 19 points and under four assists per game. And look where he is now, averaging over 30 and five assists. Think about where Anthony Edwards could be in three to five years. Personally, I think Edwards will be a top three player in the next couple of years. And SGA is a top 15 player right now. But it seems to me that some of his stats come from his usage rate and his lack of great teammates on the floor. But now we're seeing some of the same with Anthony Edwards with the departure of his former teammate, D'Angelo Russell. In the four games since, he's averaging three more points per game and close to 50% shooting. Give him some more games and let's check in on see how everyone feels at the end of the year with Anthony Edwards or SGA. That's a great question. Thank you guys so much for that question. We're going to move on to our last NBA question. What are your top five narratives left so far for the NBA regular season? All right. So in order from last to most important, we've got number five, the tanking for Wimby race. How desperate will teams get to have the worst record in the NBA? Unlike the NFL, the worst record does not guarantee the number one overall pick, but it sure doesn't hurt to have it. Right now, it's a four-team race between the Hornets, Rockets, Spurs, and Pistons, but we will see some of the other teams stoop to that level after the playoff race starts to tighten up. Number four, the MVP race. Jokic is the most efficient offensive player in NBA history over just one season. The Bucks and Giannis are on a 14-game winning streak and are screaming toward that number one seed. 
and Embiid is leaving it all on the floor every single night, dropping 33-13 and 13 while being one of the most dominant forces that we've seen in a very long time. It's anyone's race, and who's going to end up taking it home? Only time will tell. Number three, Kevin Durant and the Suns. Is this the revival of a super team? Will they get their chemistry together in 20 games or less? It's going to be extremely hard given the fact that KD, CP3, and Booker haven't been 100% healthy. So this might be a Nets 2.0 situation. We're going to have to monitor it as time goes by to see if they can get it together. My thing is that they probably will, but I don't know. Injuries play a major factor into chemistry and playoff success. It's something to keep an eye on for sure. Speaking of all that, number two, the second most important storyline in my opinion, is player health. It is such an important story to follow considering the stars that have been hurt this year. Kawhi and Paul George on the Clippers, Stephen Curry and the Warriors, Kevin Durant, CP3 on the Suns, Anthony Davis on the Lakers, Zion on the Pelicans, Middleton on the Bucks. The NBA in the playoffs will be lacking without these guys, so I think it's wildly important to monitor how their injuries are dealt with over this short period of time. And last but not least, number one on the list, the four through 12 seeds in the West. I've got a freezing cold take, so cold that it's boiling hot in the next episode. You guys will have to stay tuned for that. And it has to do with one of those teams through four through 12. Only three and a half games separates the four through 12 seeds, which is an absolute insane number. And the teams that in those seeds right now are potentially championship contenders. We've got the Suns, Clippers, Mavericks, and the Warriors. Oh my Lord. If you want my honest opinion, I think the Nuggets, the Grizzlies, and the Kings are championship frauds. And the winner of the Western Conference could really come down to where these teams end up in the playoffs. Like, the play-in could have the Warriors with Curry, the Lakers with LeBron and Anthony Davis, and the Pelicans with Zion possibly returning from one of those terrible injuries. Now, one of those teams wouldn't make it to the playoffs, and I think that's so interesting, so interesting, in fact, that it's my number one storyline to keep out for. Watch those regular season games. They are important. Now, the next topic of conversation is all about college football. Will the NIL worsen player behavior or spoil players? <sighs> I don't know. There's also a part in this question about Deion Sanders and his son getting a large NIL deal. We'll have to get to that. But honestly, I don't think the NIL and the fate of the college athlete is in the hands of the athlete themselves. It's in the boosters, coaches, and athletic directors' hands. Will those Grown adults reward poor behavior and just care about talent? Or will they be too strict and force out some kind of player development revolt? The situation to me can go one of two ways. It can go the NFL or the NBA route. The NFL route has the coaches, ADs, and boosters as one of the ones that are in charge. They would be directly controlling how the league as a whole functions and would have the upper hand in being able to control the players as far as money goes. The other route would be the NBA route, and that's where players control the league, and things like NIL deals, transfer portals, and playing time are in their hands to control. When it comes down to money, 
Everyone is always out to get theirs. So we'll see who gets the upper hand and wants the power more. Either way, it'll make for a more interesting sport, but I don't think the NIL will ruin the game any more than it quote unquote already has. This has been going on for decades. It's going to continue to go on for decades. Speaking of that, Deion Sanders' son is getting a massive NIL deal. Maybe not as big as other players, but it's still substantial. And the question is, is should he get that deal just because he's Deion Sanders' son? Nepotism has been happening in college football for years. I think it's fine. I've never really had a problem with it. If I had a problem with it, then I would have called out the Iowa head coach giving his son a circumstantial contract after having one of the worst offenses in Power 5 history. Look, nepotism exists and it just happens do I like it? No, but I do think Deion Sanders' son is pretty damn good and that he could play his way into a decently sized NIL contract elsewhere. I think it's fine. Moving on to our last topic of conversation, this is a college basketball question. How many less wins would Alabama have if Brandon Miller wasn't on the team? So currently, Alabama sits at 25-4 and and 15-1 and in the SEC, but the team has a plethora of of close wins. Miller, to me, is a top five NBA prospect and the best or second best player in college basketball. So not having him on the floor, in my opinion, would be detrimental to the team being top 10 in the country. So let's look at the games. I think almost every single game that Alabama has won that's close would easily be able to be lost by a grand total of about eight games. Michigan State, North Carolina, Houston, Memphis, Mississippi State, Auburn, South Carolina, and Arkansas were all extremely close down the stretch. The Crimson Tide, without their best scorer and defender by a mile, would be lost in the sauce when it comes to those games. Overall, I think the absence of Miller would cost Alabama, like I said, eight games, which would immediately knock them out of the top 25 and maybe even knock them out of the tournament as a whole. Miller by far is one of the most influential and important pieces to success that would be the case on any team. It's not just Alabama. I really do think that he is that talented of a prospect. Thank you guys once again all so much for this Q&A. I've had a great time doing it. If you guys have any more questions, be sure to leave them in the comments on our YouTube or hit us up on Instagram and TikTok. Make sure to follow or subscribe wherever you're at. Thank you all so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time.